All right, actually, before I start, this is funny that Michelle just said something about teaching in her pajamas. This is not, this is not part of my lesson. This just came to me right now. But I went to get ready this morning, and I had this on, and my husband was like, oh, you're wearing basketball warm-ups to teach, aren't you? And I was like, thank you. <laughs> yes, I guess I am. So he said, well, they look comfy. And I was like, okay. That, that's really what I wanted you to say to me right now. But All right, let's get started here. Hello ladies, my name is Kinley Carpenter. I'm very honored and very humbled to be standing up here with you today. Before I tell you a little bit about myself, you can start turning to Hosea chapter six. We're gonna be doing a brief overview of Hosea chapter six, seven, and eight this morning. So you can turn to Hosea six. While I tell you just a couple of things about me. Now, if you don't know me, it's most likely that you probably don't have little people that are in the nursery. <laughs> so, here at Grace, I serve on the nursery leadership board, um, and you can almost always find me down at the nursery desk. As a result of that, we have, I think, six ladies on our board now. It's really, it's a huge highlight and privilege in my life to be able to serve the moms and the little people in this way. It's something that I really hope I can do when my, my little people aren't even there anymore. So I'm also often the on-call person for the nursery. So if you ever don't see me here on Tuesday mornings, I am here. I actually have been here every study. I'm just down there on call and helping take care of the babies and same thing with Sunday mornings as well. So outside of the nursery, I am a stay-at-home mom. I have two little girls. Av is two and a half and Arlie is 14 months. So I had them 17 months apart and they keep me very much on my toes. So they're very busy, they run around. They were really excited um, all morning and we were driving here and Av was going, you can do it mommy, you can do it mommy. And I was like, thank you honey. And then we got here and she said, let's pray. And she's praying and I'm like, okay honey, we gotta go, you know? So she was really sweet, so. Before I was a stay-at-home mom, I was an English teacher here in Hutchison for two years. I taught seventh grade at HMS 7, and that little fact about me will come in quite handy today as we're going to be doing a lot of English-type things today. So, now that you've gotten to Hosea chapter 6, we can begin. One of the purposes of the teaching that Michelle has been doing this semester and what Melissa spoke on last time is to cover some of these parts of Hosea that Christy doesn't go as into depth on. This is why this morning we're going to be talking about three entire chapters of Hosea, when normally we wouldn't cover that much material in one sitting. So if you feel like I'm really flying through material, it's because I am. And before we begin, let's all pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given me. Thank you for the ways in which this has grown me and stretched me in planning for this and planning for what I'm going to say. Thank you for all of the ladies here and just their graciousness to let someone else come up here and try and speak to them. I thank you for all of the work and the teaching that Michelle has done and the wonderful lesson that we heard from Melissa. I thank you for the time that Michelle has taken out of her life to train and help Melissa and I as we embarked on this. She's so humble and kind and we are so blessed to have her. I pray that the words that I say will be clear and honoring to you, that these would be your words and not my own. 
Thank you again for this opportunity to speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's dive in. For a little recap of as to where we were in Hosea. If you're remembering from Melissa's message, we saw a lot of the priests and the leaders, and they're purposefully leading people astray. There's a lot of idol worship running rampant in the nation of Israel, and it's flowing down into the nation of Judah now as well. No matter the warnings to tear down their places of idols, or prophets like Hosea telling them about what the consequences would be if they didn't, nothing seemed to change. These severe sins of Israel are not hidden from God, and we saw that pride and idolatry were, were, and we're reminded again that we are Israel and we are Gomer in this situation. Moving on to what we're going to talk about starting chapter 6. When I began to study Hosea for this, I noticed that to me it read a little bit like the Psalms. There were obvious breaks and pauses in verses, so I'm taking small chunks of these verses to talk about today. I also included these little chunks in your outline. So if you look at your outline, there's a full view of everything I'm going to talk about today and the little chunks I'm going to go into. So chapter 6, verses 1 to 3 say, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up and we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. We seem to get a little bit of encouragement and reprieve from all of the punishment that we have been seeing in these first three verses. In these verses, we really peel back and see what Hosea desires for the nation of Israel. Hosea strongly desires that the nation would turn back to the Lord that even though they have been struck down, that the Lord would revive them and raise them up. Hosea also wants to give us a sweet little reminder in the midst of all of these chapters of warnings and all of these things, that no matter how led astray the nation of Israel has become, the Lord has never changed. He is as sure as the dawn in the morning or the showers that come in the springtime. God is faithful to his word no matter what. And as we've seen in these previous chapters of Hosea, and we're going to see more today, the same cannot be said for the people of Israel. Today we're going to see more examples of Israel being warned and not turning from their sin. In Leviticus 26, 14 to 20, we see the consequences of this disobedience. I'm not going to read all of those right now, but if you look at that, It's a very stern warning as to what's going to happen if they continue to be disobedient. This generation is not really going to see the reprieve in God's judgment because of their sin. But there will be a future unnamed generation that is going to be restored. As we move into verses 4 to 6, we see a word that I wanted to define and talk about a little bit. In verse 5, we read, Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Okay, so the word hue, or here we see the past participle hewn, means to chop or cut. So if we go back and we put that definition into the verse, it reads a little clearer and easier for us. Therefore I have cut or chopped them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. 
the prophets, as well as Hosea himself, have been sent to cut the people of Israel with their words. This is graphic language showing how seriously the words of the prophets should be taken. They're providing warnings from God about what is about to come. These are significant words that should hold weight to them, but so far they haven't. Hosea moves on to verse 6 to say that he desires that Israel would have a steadfast love and knowledge of God. And the sacrifices and burnt offerings that they're currently offering are not a replacement for those things. Making a burnt offering is not the same thing as having a knowledge or relationship with the Lord. The Israelites were offering up sacrifices in the form of a routine. To them, this became almost a type of ritual. Now, this seems really crazy to us until we kind of examine our own actions. Don't we also have things in our lives that just become a ritual and a routine instead of being out of service and love to the Lord? I want you to think on that question a little bit because we're going to come back to it at the end. For this last chunk in chapter 6, I actually had to get some help from the pastors. Verse 7 says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, in order to understand this verse, we really need to zone in on the word there in the verse. Pastor Steve has done some research on this verse, and by context, he would say that the word Adam that you see in this verse is actually speaking of a geographical location, potentially located by the Jordan River. So when we see the word of the use of the word there, we're seeing there as a reference of a place. So reading it again, when you think about that, will kind of change what you think about it. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant there, in that place, they dealt faithlessly with me. Seeing this as a location can also help us understand verse 8 when it speaks of Gilead. Gilead is also a location that spans the region east of the Jordan River. Gilead in verse 8 was spoken of as a city that had evildoers and was tracked with blood. Moving on through the end of the chapter, we see more examples of how Israel is defiled and filled with evil and bloodshed. Verse 10 shows us clearly, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's Ephraim's harlot is there, and Israel is defiled. Although Hosea reminds us that it's not only Israel who will be dealt with, it's also Judah who was warned not to fall prey to these sins of Israel and failed. Verse 11 shows that Judah has not been forgotten. We see some flashbacks to earlier in Scripture, specifically Jeremiah 51:13, which says, in speaking about Judah, O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. Judah is currently in a time of prosperity. But their end, as we see, is coming. The Lord remembers their sin and has already appointed a day when they will also be dealt with. Now, as we move into chapter 7, we see that it seems to be a continuation of chapter 6. There's no new heading when you look at chapter 7. There's nothing. It doesn't end. In the ESV, it actually ends on a comma and then continues into chapter 7. So it's just kind of a continuation. The last line of chapter 6 is, When I would restore the fortunes of my people. Now this flows right into the first verses in chapter 7, which say, When I would heal Israel, 
the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, and they are before my face. Here we see again that the Lord will remember. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, and it's mentioned. The iniquity of Ephraim is also mentioned. That and the evil deeds of Samaria are actually talking about the same thing in this verse. Hosea is pointing out that Samaria shows us that he's speaking to the entire northern kingdom. He's not speaking to a small sect of it, he's speaking to the whole kingdom. This shows us that no matter where they're located in this northern kingdom, the Lord is telling them that he's going to remember their evil. Now, we're going to move on to some verses that really intrigued me while I was studying. As I said earlier, I was an English teacher for two years. So when I saw this next section of verses, I actually got really excited to talk about them because they used a figure of speech that I taught my seventh graders quite a bit. Looking at verses three to seven, we see the use of a simile. Now, does anyone remember what qualifies a figure of speech to be a simile? Yeah, it's a figure of speech that compares two unlike things using the word like or as. Similes are used in the English language to spark interesting connections between two things that probably wouldn't have much in common. Verse 4 says, They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. In this simile, we see that the two unlike things are adulterers and a heated oven. The baker in this simile has not stirred this fire from the time that the dough was being kneaded until it's fully cooked. And we're meant to see that the sin that Israel is committing is so all-consuming that it's like this fire. It's hot enough that it doesn't even have to be poked or stirred or added to. Israel has allowed their sin to be consuming in this way. Verse 6 says, All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. And verse 7 echoes with that same sentiment. All of them are hot like an oven, and they devour their rulers. All the kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Similarly, verses 8 to 10 also rely heavily on figurative language to get a specific point across. Now, a little side note before I continue on. I wanted to say how, when I was studying, I thought it was so cool how there was so much figurative language in these chapters. And this was not something that Michelle gave me beforehand. She let us choose our chapters, Melissa and I. And these are just the ones that I chose. And it was something that I was really thankful for when I was studying because it married two things that I really loved, studying the word of the Lord and talking about English. So I thought that was really cool. Okay, the first figure of speech we see occurs in verse 8. It's another simile, and it's also about baking. Verse 8 says, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Now, looking into this reminded me of my own life. One thing that my mom always did when I was growing up was bake Swebok. Now, if you don't know what Swebok is, it's a small bread roll. It's actually a German food. It's normally two rolls stacked upon one another, but we always just made it with one. 
If there are any people that speak German here, I am sure that I am completely messing up that word. But Swebach is what I've always called it. So that's what I'm gonna say. My grandma Farney actually also made, has always made them for us. So when the time came that I had little people that I needed to feed snacks to, I realized I should probably learn how to make these. So it's not really that hard. If you have a bread machine, it's really not hard at all. You just dump everything in your bread machine and you press the button and it goes and it's great, right? Now when you get to the baking, it can get a little more tricky. So the first time that I made them, I did not pause them or turn them or switch the racks or anything. I put them in the oven, I pressed 10 minutes and I went, right? Some of you are gonna know what they looked like when I took them out, right? Some of them were not baked fully at all. And some of them were really almost black. I mean, it was, it was bad. So the next time I made them, I would put them for five minutes on a timer. With the five minutes would go on, I'd switch the racks, right? As most people would do normally, but I did not. So after doing this twice, I had a much more even and consistent bake across them. And there was none of them that were necessarily raw. And this is the point that Hosea is trying to get across with this figurative language. David Hubbard said in his commentary, bread baking provides the background of the verse 8b as it did in 3 to 7. But here the point is from the cake, not the oven. A flat disc of dough shaped like a pita bread was clapped onto one side of the oven and left unturned by the baker. The result was an edible raw dough on one side and scorched crust on the other. It may not be pushing the imagery beyond its bounds to say that Ephraim's side that was turned towards the nations was badly burnt, while the, un the underdone side, the unpalatable weak commitment to Yahweh, was underdone. Israel has invited all of these foreign nations into their walls, and they've become unstable. They are a cake that's not turned. They are raw in some places, and they are burnt in other places. They're raw on the side where, the na where their commitment to Yahweh is. There's nothing there. They're burnt on the side of they're inviting all these nations into their walls, and they're slowly tearing them down. Verse 9 to 10 continue to prove this point that the nation is becoming more weaker and more unstable by saying, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. We see that strangers have devoured the nation's strength. The nation is even said to have gray hairs and not know it. Now, how many people would have gray hairs and not know it? I don't think anyone of us in this room can relate to this because we all know if we're getting gray hairs. It's just another example of how, to, how out of touch the nation of Israel has become. And Michelle also told me that in this gray hairs analogy, it could also be referred to as when you have a piece of fruit that becomes moldy and there's little hairs on it and you just eat it anyway. How gross is that? None of us would do that. We wouldn't take an apple out of the fridge or a peach or whatever and eat it even though it had hairy, gross mold on it. It's another way that we're seeing that Israel is so desensitized to their sin. They don't even see how gross it is. Now, you might be getting tired of feeling like you're back in seventh grade English class, but there's another simile present in chapter 7, verse 11 to 13. 
Israel is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. David Hubbard said in his commentary again, verses 11 through 13, Ephraim is banking on foreign relations for security and stability. The ambivalence that sent them flitting from Mesopotamia to the Nile in search of an ally could only be called scatterbrained, whether from fear, gullibility, or both. Without sense literally means without heart or without power or judgment to make sound choices that are readily influenced by irrational factors. Their calling to Egypt stands in contrast to their failure to call on God while their journeying to Assyria has prevented them from returning to him, end quote. Israel is acting without common sense. This is why they are compared to a dove. Doves in that time were not considered to be the smartest birds. Israel is seeking out assistance from Egypt and Assyria instead of seeking it from the Lord. And this makes them senseless. They are looking everywhere else to find help, when the only help that they really need comes from the Lord. He sees this and comments in the end of these verses that they will be destroyed because of their rebellion of him. Verse 13 says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Distraction to them, for they have rebelled against me. In the last section of chapter 7, we require to define two different words. These words are both in verse 16. They are insolence and derision. Now, without reading the, the meanings of those verses, of those words, I'm going to read the verse 16. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, we can understand this verse from context clues, but it becomes much clearer when we look at the meanings of those two words. Insolence means rude or disrespectful behavior. And derision means ridicule or mockery. So if we go back and we include those statements in, into our verse, we'll have a little clearer understanding. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the rude and disrespectful behavior of their tongue. This shall be their ridicule or mockery in the land of Egypt. The princes in these verses are literally going to die because of the rude and disrespectful things that they have said with their tongues. And Israel is going to be mocked for it. All while they are still not turning back to the Lord. They're just relying on their own strength instead. Chapter 8. Only 14 more verses to go. <laughs> Chapter 8 begins with, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Now, as we saw from Melissa in chapter 5, verse 8, trumpets in this time were used as a signal. Watchtowers, as I understand it, were placed at the edges of town, and horns would sound when there was an enemy invader. Now, sometimes these horns would sound to just signal something small, but they usually saved them to signal something like an invasion. 
In these verses, we see that there's a group of people that's over Israel acting like a vulture. This group of people is cause for signaling invasion. If we look back at Deuteronomy 28, 49, and 50, this helps us understand further who this is. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Now again, we learn from Melissa that Assyria is the nation that God had already established as the enemy, the enemy that God had chosen to invade them. Israel is so blinded to their sins that they're turning to men, but they're even turning to a nation that was chosen to invade them. Assyria was the first nation that the Lord used to try and bring the people back to himself. And very clearly the Lord said that they had broken his covenant and rebelled against his law. We see that this first nation was Assyria also from Isaiah 7, 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is the land of Assyria. But there is also another nation who came after Assyria to destroy the Israelites in Judah. Does anybody remember who that was? Here's a hint. It was studied in a previous Every Woman's Grace study. Babylon. Habakkuk 1.6 shows us, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, whose march through the breadth of earth to seize dwellings not their own. Moving on to verses 4 to 6. We see how exactly Israel has broken this covenant with the Lord. They have made kings, they've set up princes, they've been using their silver and gold to create idols. These idols will be the cause of their destruction. The Lord will not share his glory. In verse 6, it's very clear that they will be broken. For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Any idols that they have set up will now be destroyed. And this is the same for us now. Pastor Bart has been showing us that through his Pursuit of Purity series on Sunday mornings. Whatever idols we set up will also break us down. Now, idols don't have to be a small golden calf that we set our, in our windowsill and pray to. We've seen all kinds of examples of things that can become idols. Good things even. Going to church serving in a ministry, cooking only healthy food for your family, being your best parent or the best grandparent you can be. Whatever it is that you put in your heart above the Lord can become an idol. And looking into the word, we can see that idols were set up to be broken to pieces. And it's good for us to look into our hearts and evaluate what we find there. Again, we're going to be coming back to my question I asked earlier at the end. The next section in chapter 8, verses 7 to 10 showcases actually a few very famous verses in the Bible. First verse we're going to talk about is verse 7. Now there's a lot of commentaries or blogs or articles written about the metaphor that's in this verse. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Now a commentary from Tim Chester helped me to understand this a little bit more. He said, a common delusion of people is to think that actions have no consequences. 
certainly no consequences in relation to God. Sowing in a wind could be positive, with the wind distributing the seed, but here it should be understand, understood in a negative way, with the wind taking the seed away from its intended target." End quote. Now my dad is a farmer and has been his entire life, so I know a thing or two, kind of, about sowing seed where it was not intended. Not only is it a nuisance, but it's a huge cost and loss to that farmer. Later in this same commentary that I just referenced, Tim makes another good point. This proverb forces the reader to pause. It describes situations in which there is an inevitable link between a given cause and a certain effect. In other words, if you do a certain action, you can be sure that certain consequences will follow. This ties back to Israel and the covenant that they made with God. If you look into Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you can see this. But the twist in this proverb is that it describes situations in which the consequences are larger than the actions that precipitated them. A small action leads to a much larger consequence. Now, again, this made me think of my own life. And this might be a silly example. This is what it made me think of. I am a stay-at-home mom, as I said before. But I also very much like to sleep. So when my alarm goes off before my kids are awake, sometimes I snooze it. Seems harmless, right? Maybe so. But my snoozing of my alarm continues until the moment that my two toddlers wake up. And let me say, it is never a good morning when my two toddlers are waking up at the exact same time that mommy is waking up. <laughs> I have not had a chance to get my heart right before the Lord in any way or spend any quiet time with him, and that shows. The way that I treat them when they wake up and immediately start crying because I took their blanket off when they wanted to take their blanket off is very different than if I would have gotten my heart right and been patient with them. This small action of snoozing my alarm over and over led to a much bigger consequence of me being impatient and probably unkind to my children. That's what he's saying. And we tend to do this with our sin too. We tend to think that a really small sin won't really be of much consequence. Maybe it's a small lie in order to not be embarrassed by something. But then, before we know it, we're going to these elaborate lengths to keep it up. And when someone finds us out, we feel much more embarrassment than if we would have initially just told the truth. In verse 8 to 10, we see repeated again that Israel is so inundated with their sin that they've turned to men, namely Assyria, for help. In verse 9, we see that Israel has been compared to a wild donkey, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Tim Chester said in his commentary, the words, Hebrew words for donkey and Ephraim have the same consonants. Hebrew is usually written just using the consonants. So in Hebrew, these shared consonants tie these words together. They make kind of like a pun. Their similar names point to another similarity between Israel and wild donkeys. They're both restless in search of a partner. Israel should have remained faithful to the Lord and trusted him for security. 
but instead she'd pursued alliances with other nations. Israel seeking out assistance from Assyria is a show of how stubborn and far away from the Lord they are. The words for donkey and Ephraim are similar because of the way that they look. Israelites would have been able to look at these words and see this similarity. Stuart Douglas in his commentary also said, the word donkey makes a visual pun with the word Ephraim, though whether such a pun could be distinguished orally would be questionable. Donkey may also recall a poetic promise to God, to Ishmael, in Genesis 16, 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over his kinsmen, where donkey conveys the sense of one that is isolated or enmity with others. This last section in chapter 8 shows that the Lord has not forgotten the warnings that he has given. Israel has continued to multiply their altars for sinning, and thus they have themselves have become altars of sin. Verse 12 shows us how far away they've gone from the Lord and the commandments that he had given them. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would still be regarded as a strange thing. Yet again, we see more figurative language, but this time it's in the form of a hyperbole. A hyperbole is an exaggerated statement not meant to be taken literally, or as I would tell my seventh graders, an extravagant exaggeration. The most common example of a hyperbole would be it's raining cats and dogs when it's raining really hard outside. Now Hosea's hyperbole is saying that even if he was to write the exact same warnings 10,000 times, and even if he was to write the same laws 10,000 times, the people would look at him as though he was strange. They are hardened and they're not listening. Israel has been duly warned and was without excuse for their sin. These last two verses in chapter 8 that we're going to talk about are again best described by Tim Chester. He says, verse 13 makes clear, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. What saves is not the sacrifice itself, but the faith in, in the reality to which it points. Anything else is an attempt to manipulate God, to buy him off rather than trust his grace. Our religious duties can become sinful acts. Attending church, listening to good sermons, praying every day, serving the needy can all be sinful acts if we do them to win God's approval or earn his blessing. They are sinful acts because they are in denial of his grace. We act as if the cross is not enough, and we need to top it with our own efforts. End quote. He says that in a quote, our religious duties can become sinful acts. Earlier, I said to remember how Israel was offering up sacrifices as a form of a routine. And I alluded to the fact that we do that too. Our religious routines can be a number of different things. If we're doing anything church-related, but our hearts are not for Christ, we can fall very easily into this. We have to guard our hearts against doing things for the Lord simply out of obligation and routine. Now, the Lord gave his all for us. The people of Israel did not have the cross yet, but we do. Casey asked me right before I started 
teaching what was something that I learned. And I told her that this was something that was really sweet to me. That when I was studying all of these chapters, I was feeling a little bit like sad, you know? All it is is warnings and warnings and all of these things, and yet no one's turning from their sin. But we don't have to do that. We have the cross. We have Jesus. We have the fulfillment. We don't have to have all of these blunders and all, this, all of these things. Now we can look at Israel, right? We can see their mistakes, the blunders, the outright denials of God. But how often do we do these things ourselves? How often do we come to church because it's what we do on Sundays or make it a legalistic or religious duty? Instead, we should use these extensive warnings that Hosea has laid out to Israel and, and learn from them. We should use our daily lives and our opportunities to show grace that the Lord has extended to us instead of denying it. My last thing I want to say is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, If we give God service, it must be because he has given us grace. We work for him because he works in us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for this time. Thank you for giving us your word that we can study, that we can learn from. Thank you for showing us that the Israelites had mistakes. They had blunders. They had denials of you. Thank you that we can look at them and we don't have to be the same in our own life. Please help us to guard our hearts against making different things legalistic or a duty. Thank you for showing us examples of what not to do in your word so we can guard our hearts against it. Please help the ladies now with their time of discussion. May it be a sweet time of conversation and fellowship for them. Amen. Now, I just have three discussion questions for you, but you're going to have some time at your tables to talk about them. So, the first one is, in what ways are we like the Israelites? where our service to the Lord has become lacking and kind of like a routine. The second is how can we guard against setting up idols in our own hearts, even idols that are made out of good things. And the third is do we have any sins that are like a donkey, stubborn and hard to remove? Pray about those and confess them to the Lord and then ask what can change or what do I need to do to correct this sin in my life? Thank you guys so much.